0: And you may be familiar, I've said this so many times before, but I know many of you are new. You may be familiar with the idea of a teaching and training hospital, where we are a teaching and a training church. And one of the areas we train people in is to be future pastors, missionaries, and church planners that we send out all over the world. And one of the venues we equip them in is allowing them to preach. It's intentional that I don't preach every week so that others are given the opportunity to study the word and to bring the word to you faithfully. And this morning, you're going to hear from one of our interns. His name is Chipper Flanagan. He has helped us with a variety of things since he's been here, and he's served in a number of areas from um, helping us establish the city, and he's worked with us with strategic planning, and also he leads an ethos community that many of you are a part of. He's a student at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and he has a wonderful godly wife, Kristen, and they've been married for a whole six months, which is great. And I really appreciate this guy. I, he comes into the office uh, quite regularly during the week. We get a chance to talk, and he reminds me a lot of myself when I was younger and the just the intensity, except that he's a whole lot smarter than me, which is amazing. So I, I really Learn from him. I'm encouraged by him. I, he teaches me things from the Word, and, and I really just appreciate his heart. And I know you're going to be blessed this morning. So Chipper, come on up and bring the Word, man.
1: So I know even after that announcement, a lot of you are still thinking, "Man, they let the they let the interns preach here." And um, I'm kind of thinking the same thing right now, but. But honestly, that, that is a fair question, and we actually preach our sermon uh, to the associate pastor before we preach it um, up here on Sunday, and you might be thinking, wow, that sounds like a really awkward environment, one-on-one with John Bechtel, our associate pastor, and um, it is a very awkward environment. <laughs> and, um, but it's very helpful and helps ensure that you know, what I say today isn't completely off the rails. Um, on the other hand, John isn't here this morning, so you can interpret that how you want. Um. The the text for this message this morning is Matthew 12, verses 22 through 50. And in this passage, we're going to see that Jesus says some very, very strong things about commitment and the nature of commitment, particularly commitment to following uh, God and being in the family of God. And this is a very important issue I think uh, I can speak for my generation and say that we have a lot of, tro- uh, a lot of problems committing. In some ways, we're, we're committed to being uncommitted. And this morning, we're going to look at five different scenes in Matthew 12 that, that deal with this idea of commitment to following Christ. And as we do this, keep in mind that there's really two groups that Jesus is going to be addressing here. He's speaking, first of all, to Pharisees, and we've talked about them before, they're The religious men, very learned, um, follow very strict extra-biblical traditions to help apply the biblical law to daily living. Um, And they're pretty popular in the community in general. And then secondly, Jesus is speaking to crowds, because there would be crowds that would follow Jesus while he would be speaking. Sometimes he would be speaking to the Pharisees, and then there there would be crowds in the background listening to him speak. So let's go ahead and start with scene one. And this is going to be verses 22 through 32. This is the longest of the five scenes. And in this first scene, we're going to see Jesus talk about the need for a commitment. The need for a commitment. And I'll go ahead and read verses 22 through 32. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan... Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come." I think it's important to first realize that at the beginning of this scene, Jesus does something truly amazing. Jesus does a lot of miracles. So it's easy to just kind of glance over this and say, oh, here we have Jesus doing another miracle. But he does another miracle. And as such, we should expect some amazement from the crowd, some some pure amazement. And we see that that is the case for one group. We see in verse 23 that all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? So they saw this miracle and they were so impressed that on one hand they were thinking, man, could could this be the Messiah? What what do we have here in our midst? But then there's a second reaction. It's completely different than the first reaction. The second reaction comes from the Pharisees. And essentially, they attribute what Jesus has just done to Beelzebul, which is basically saying, you're working miracles by the power of Satan. Completely different (laughs) reaction And really, this is kind of the last resort for the Pharisees, honestly, in a lot of ways. We've seen them dogging Jesus. We saw this at the beginning of chapter 12. Um, It's almost like they've gotten together on a little huddle and decided, you know, our our previous attempts to disqualify Jesus have henceforth uh, have have previously failed. So from now on often, we're just going to attribute everything he does to Satan. It's like little desperation grenades that they're throwing Jesus' way to try to disqualify him, especially in the minds of the people. But by the way, if you think this is crazy, I think this still happens today. There's still plenty of attempts to disqualify Jesus. If you just go into a Christian bookstore, sometimes I think half the stuff in that uh, religion section deals with this sort of thing, attempts to disqualify Jesus. So we still see this certainly in our generation. But regardless, we have two reactions. We have one of, of amazement and one of cynicism in attributing what Jesus is doing to Satan. So somebody isn't right. One reaction is, is clearly wrong and jesus says as much and he addresses the pharisees and he begins this in, in verse 25 and the context is important here it looks like jesus is re- really realizing that okay these pharisees they, they asked for signs they wanted to see things I've, I've done things but they attributed it to satan but now they're asking for another sign probably because they want uh, jesus to, uh, to prove his authority in some way how, how can you be doing all of these things But he knows their evil intent, and so he doesn't actually give them a sign. In fact, first of all, he points out a logical fallacy, and he he addresses this in this section of verses. He says, you know what? If I was actually casting out demons by the power of demons, that would be a divided kingdom, and it would not stand. And furthermore, as if that wasn't already a strong argument, he says, look, your sons, your disciples, people that follow you, they cast out demons, So are they casting out demons by the power of demons? So Jesus is clearly saying, look, I'm not doing this by satanic powers at all. So then if he's not casting out demons by the power of Satan, by what authority is he doing this? And Jesus addresses this in verse 28. He says, look, I'm doing this by the Spirit of God. And in fact, the kingdom of God is here Huge statement. But it makes sense. Because if Jesus truly is the Son of God, then in in some sense the kingdom of God certainly has arrived, and it makes sense that Jesus would say this. It's not the full arrival of the kingdom of God, because at this point Jesus hasn't hasn't died and, and risen again from the dead, and he's still coming back. So he's not saying it's fully here, but he's saying in some sense the kingdom of God is here. So not only does Jesus say, look, I'm not casting out demons by the power of Satan. He's making claims to divinity very clearly and not really leaving a lot of room for doubt in the minds of others as far as how Jesus perceives himself. The kingdom of God has actually arrived. And in verse 29, we see he's, he starts to give you some insight as far as what he's doing by casting out demons since it's by the power of, of the Spirit of God. He says, look, I'm binding Satan and then taking care of business. In other words, I have to restrain the power of Satan in order to do my work in this kingdom. If if people, if demons were just indwelling people and Jesus could do it, nothing about it, that would leave him powerless. So of course, Jesus has the authority and power to, to bind Satan and then build his kingdom. And what we see here is Jesus is saying, Not only am I casting out demons and doing this work by the power of ...of the Spirit of God, I'm doing it with a lot of force. A lot of forcefulness. It's not out-of-control force. Jesus has a plan. He has a strategy. He knows what he's doing, and he says as much in verse 29. And for those of you who are here today that say, ...you know, I'm a committed follower of Christ. I follow Jesus. This should make you excited, first of all, to see that Jesus' kingdom is advancing with this force. I think it should certainly make you bold in your proclamation of the gospel... To other people. If Jesus can advance his kingdom with this kind of power and this kind of authority, it should certainly make you bold in your evangelism. It shouldn't make us, you know, uh, it shouldn't help cause us to slide into triumphalism and boldness and arrogance, but it should, certainly should make us um, bold in pro- proclaiming the gospel. But then in verse 30, we see that, that Jesus starts to draw a line in the sand. We've seen these two reactions, one of amazement and then on the other hand, we've seen this reaction of total cynicism and Jesus ups the ante and in verse 30, he says something very important. He says, look, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So he's saying, look, are you with me on this? Are you with me on this mission? Because if you're not, you're against me. So Jesus is just ripping the rug right from under people who think somehow there can be a neutral position as far as what you think about of the kingdom of God. You can't ride the fence regarding the kingdom of God. You can't ride the fence. So when we see the God at work, we have to think about this. What's our reaction? What's our response? Is it, is it a response of amazement or is it a response of, of cynicism and, 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 and doubt and I heard a pastor very recently talk about this and say, it's really popular to be cynical in our generation. Um, It it brings people to your blogs. It it makes you sort of seem knowledgeable sometimes to be a cynic and ask a lot of questions. So when we see the power of God at work, are we committing to him or are we responding with cynicism? So Jesus is drawing a line in the sand and, and showing the need for a commitment. And then in verses 31 and 32, Jesus talks about the consequences of the two sides. On one hand, and we see this in verses 31 through 32, there's really good news for those people who repent and run to Jesus. And we see this, let's read it again. It says, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. And then pause for a minute, and in verse 32, it says, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven so you can, even, you can curse and even revile the very Son of God. But God is so gracious and so forgiving that if you say, look, you know what? No, I commit to following Jesus Christ. If you ultimately repent and turn to Him, you can be forgiven. But then he also addresses the other side. And we see this in verse, 32, uh, verse 31 and 32. He says, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And again, Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So there is a sinful pattern here that Jesus is saying, look, if, if that's your life, ultimately, there's no forgiveness. So what does he mean here? He's meaning, look, there's a wrong choice here. There's a wrong choice. There's a wrong commitment. In other words, if you see this, the Spirit of God at work in great power, and you write it off, and you write it off as inco- uh, inconsequential or satanic, you're in a really bad position. And I think the therefore in verse 31 is important. He's saying, if look, if God shows you his powerful working through the Holy Spirit, and you reject this, this does not lead to salvation, and is in this way unforgivable. If you reject the working of the Holy Spirit, this ultimately leads to, to eternal condemnation. We see that in verse 32. So, so Jesus is not speaking about one-shot sins here. I think that's very important to realize. He's speaking out a pattern of rejection that is characteristic of your entire life, similar to what the Pharisees seem to be falling into. A few years back, I don't know if you remember this, there, a lot of people got on the YouTube and they made these videos, usually a few minutes long, and in these videos they would, they would blaspheme the Holy Spirit and, and post it on YouTube, basically a way of saying, do something to me, God, I'm blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But actually, Jesus is not saying here that these people are outside the kingdom of God. In fact, if these people who posted those videos onto YouTube would turn and repent the following Jesus Christ, even those people could be saved and be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So Jesus is not here saying, look, if you do something really, really bad, or really, really terrible, or really awful, you're out. He's saying, if you reject me, and reject me, and reject me, and reject me, and that is your pattern, there's no forgiveness for you. You're, you're shutting out the light. And a, a pastor, uh, Matthew Henry, who worked did his work in the 17th and 18th century, sums this up really well. This is a very important point to think through. But he says, he says this, and this is very helpful. Humble and conscientious believers at times are tempted to think that they have committed the unpardonable sin, while those who have come the nearest to it seldom have any fear about it. We may be absolutely sure that those who indeed repent and believe the gospel have not committed this sin or any other of the same kind. So on one hand, that's extremely encouraging to those of us who are worried about this. On the other hand, if you're sitting here thinking, I don't care, I don't, what is this? Consider this a warning. So Jesus is drawing a line in the sand. There are two sides, for Christ or against Christ. There's an encouraging hope for those who are in Christ and terrible news for those who ultimately reject Christ even if they have tasted the fruit of church community. In other words, you can go to church every Sunday. You can go to small groups. You, you, can, you can grow up in the church. But if your consistent response to the movement of the Spirit of God is indifference or scoffing, ultimately, you're shutting out the light. And there isn't forgiveness for that. So make a commitment and choose a side. Jesus is clearly showing very clearly showing the need for a commitment. So that's scene one. A line has been drawn in the sand. Scene two, and all these other scenes are, are much briefer. Scene two is verses 33 through 37. And here we, hear, here we see Jesus talking about the indication of commitment. In other words, how do you know if you're actually committed to something? How do you know if you're actually committed to following Something or someone? What side are you on? Where have you made a commitment? So let's see what Jesus has to say. And this is starting in verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. In other words, Jesus is saying, your actions are going to clearly demonstrate what side you're on. And I think this is a very intuitive reality. In fact, the world thinks this. And I think, therefore, it's not at all surprising that one of the most common objections to Christianity is, your followers are hypocrites. They, they're, they're not doing what, what they said they're going to do. That shouldn't surprise us, because we, we know, we feel this. If you say something, you should do something accordingly. You know, people talk about the Crusades, they talk about the Inquisition. Sometimes they know people that claim to be Christians that, that don't seem to really be acting that way. And so, if someone said that to Jesus, you know, I think Jesus would probably say, look, those who live hypocritical lives don't really know what true Christianity is. And when I think about that, that, that's tough, and that's a hard thing. In other words, when you see hypocrisy, it's, it's not true Christianity that's the problem, it's, it's the people. So we see in these verses very clearly that obedience is an indicator of commitment and an expression of inward change. So Jesus has drawn a line and said, you're on this side or you're on this side, and your obedience is going to demonstrate which side you're on. It's very difficult to fake the side. But it's very important to realize that Jesus is not here saying, obey, and that gets you to a certain side. He said, you have to commit. And then from that, Your actions will demonstrate which place you've committed to. Scene two. So we saw that Jesus shows us the need for a commitment. He shows us the indication of the commitment. And then in scene three, we see something about the grounds and the foundation of the commitment, particularly the commitment to following Jesus Christ. Scene three is verses 38 through 42. Let me read these verses. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So I don't blame you if you, if you hear that and you're thinking, what is going on here? We've had, we were doing just great. We had the Pharisees, Jesus, and the crowds. Now we have Jonah. Now we have Solomon. We have uh, a queen of the south. What is going on here? But it's actually really important that we think about this because Jesus is saying something very serious about the grounds and the foundation of commitment. So in this context, we talked about this earlier, but the, the Pharisees want some sort of a sign because they want Jesus to... to prove that he has authority to do the things that he's doing. They, they want to see this. And really, the Pharisees had two, well, they had a lot of issues with Jesus, but two of the very critical issues they had with Jesus is, one is, where does your authority come from? Or how, how are you teaching this way? You just contradicted our teaching about the Sabbath. How, how, can, how can you do this? And then secondly, they had big issues with his, his wisdom and knowledge. Wait a minute, you, you haven't had the same kinds of you know, teachings that we've had. You we, we haven't grown up in our circles. You, you hear people criticize Jesus in the gospel. You know, you're the son of a carpenter. Who are you to be walking around teaching people as if you have some sort of authority? So Pharisees had two... Uh, those were two of the most significant problems that they had with Jesus. So what we're going to see is Jesus is actually going to kind of tackle those issues, the authority issue and the wisdom issue, head on. Because it really matters. You don't want to commit to following Jesus unless he has authority Wisdom. So what is he saying here about this, this sign of Jonah? Okay, well, We need to think about Jonah historically really briefly. Jonah was a, a prophet in the Old Testament that God called to go to a very rebellious people and say, return to me, come back to me. But what did Jonah do? As a lot of us know, he went the other way, completely rebelled against God's call to go to Nineveh. And while he was rebelling, he was on a a ship and a storm came and it was powerful enough to sink the ship and Jonah said to the people, hey, cast me into the sea. If you cast me into the sea, you'll save everyone else on the ship. So they did that, cast Jonah in, everybody was saved, and then eventually Jonah went and preached to the people of Nineveh and they ended up, surprisingly to Jonah, repenting. Repenting. So the people of Nineveh repented. So as a recap, he disobeyed, cast them to the sea, saved the ship, preached to the Ninevites, and they repented. But Jesus is saying in this text, I'm greater than Jonah. I'm greater than Jonah. So what does that mean? Well, if you think about this, and you see this this allusion here in these verses, Jesus is actually saying, look, just as Jonah was was three days in the belly of this fish, I'm going to be in the heart of the earth. And this is Jesus speaking about his coming, crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection from the dead. So this is what Jesus has in mind. So what Jesus is basically saying here is, look, I was completely obedient to God, yet I was still cast out into the storm, talking about his crucifixion and his death, for the salvation of souls, not just, for the, not just saving people that were on a boat. He's, I'm saving souls here. I'm at work. So I'm the far greater Jonah. And I didn't do anything wrong. Jonah disobeyed. I did nothing. Yet I'm still here taking the punishment of the world. So here we have Jesus very emphatically establishing his authority and his right to teach and preach as he does. I'm the greater Jonah. I have more authority. But you also, is, if you think about it, He's a greater Jonah, but the Pharisees essentially write him off. They don't give up. They don't care at all. So Jesus is establishing his authority. The Pharisees don't seem to care. In fact, they're totally against him. But he certainly said, hey, you, you have problems with my authority. Here's my authority. I'm greater than Jonah, and this is why. And then he comes to this, this issue of the Queen of the South. And so who, who is the queen of the south? And that's an important question to ask. Well, the queen of the south originally came from this land outside of the, the kingdom of Solomon, who was the king of Israel, because she, she heard about Solomon's wealth and, and his wisdom and really couldn't believe that he had the kind of wisdom and the wealth that, that he was hear, she was hearing about. So she comes to Solomon and, and, and tries to test him. Do you really, are you really wise like this? Are, are, do you really have this wealth? And when she, when she arrived and saw the wealth and the wisdom that Solomon had, she was completely blown away. And if you read about that account in the Old Testament, it says she was so blown away that there was no more breath in her. But you know what? Jesus is the greater Solomon. Solomon was wise, but Jesus is wiser. And how do we know this? Scripture makes this very clear. If you read 1 Corinthians one twenty four. It talks about Jesus Christ being the actual wisdom of God. It doesn't get any wiser than that. That's as wise as you can possibly be. But yet, even though Christ is greater than Solomon and he is the wisdom of God, the Pharisees just, eh. He's doing the work of Satan. He's casting out demons by the power of Satan. But regardless, even though The Pharisees are rejecting his claims. He's still saying, look, you have issues with my wisdom. I'm the wisest person that has ever been or ever will be. I'm that wise. And this is a very important thing to think about because you know what this means. If you're committing to Jesus Christ, you're not just committing to some dude. You're not just committing to to this nice historical figure that was a moral teacher. No, he says, you're committing to the Son of God who has more authority than anyone, and has more wisdom than anyone ever. Hands down, end of the story. So if you commit to following Jesus, you're not just committing to something, you're committing to everything. So again, we have to think, are you awed by Christ and repentant? Well, you should be, because Christ is greater than everything and everyone. It is not possible. It is totally inconceivable and impossible that anything ever could be greater than Jesus Christ. So we see, first of all, the need for a commitment, scene one, scene two. Jesus talks about the indication of the commitment, scene three. Jesus gives us a foundation for this commitment. Then we move to scene four in verses 43 through 45. And in this scene we see that Jesus speaks of the folly of a partial or an incomplete commitment. The folly of an impartial or incomplete commitment. I'll start with verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Okay, so another kind of complicated scene here. We have evil spirits coming and going away, and then coming back. We have them going to waterless places or, or arid places, it says in some translations. So. So what's going on here? What, what does Jesus have in mind when he's speaking about evil spirits leaving and then coming back? Well, it seems like Jesus has in mind here people who have been exposed to the powerful working of the Spirit of God, and maybe, maybe they like some of the morals and they like some of the principles. Maybe they want Christianity for self-help purposes. Maybe they think, well, if, if I commit to you know if, if I get involved with this, I can, I can get my life back together. Jesus has a picture of that kind of person, but has never actually committed to following Christ. So they like a lot of things about Christianity, maybe. They've been exposed to it. They say, oh, I can see some good here. Maybe they get their life back in order. But they don't actually commit to following the Savior of the world. And very sadly, this I know someone that, that I think fits into this camp very well. There, I had actually one of my, one of my very best Friends, and undergrad. Uh, he came out of high school. Uh, his life was kind of a mess, to be honest. Uh, he was getting on all kinds of, of drinking and, um, and, and sexual issues. And, but he came to college, and he seemed to turn everything around because he got involved with the church. He got involved with the, a church ministry. I was, being, uh, I was in a small group. In fact, I led a small group with this guy. And it's like, wow, he's been totally... It seems like he's really changing things. He's getting his life back in order here. I went overseas for a summer. I came back after a couple of months and I get a phone call. This is the first thing, pretty much off the plane. Hey, Chipper. said. How's it going? He said, just want to let you know, while you were away this summer, I, I, I kind of got back into some of my old habits. I, I uh, started drinking again pretty heavily and I'm seeing different women. I'm going to live with them and Um, several of them, actually, and he said, this, this, this is, I'm done with this church thing. I'm done. I'm not going to lead the small group with you like we were supposed to do this fall. You're on your own. Um, I'm not going to be a leader in this ministry. You won't see me at church anymore. In fact, I'm not even going to hang out with you at all anymore. I'm just going to hang out with these people because they're doing what I'm doing. See you later. I'm gone. And that's what happened. He was gone. I've seen him... A handful of times since then, usually at weddings. But that, that really was it. He wasn't kidding when he said that. We've been, we've been praying for him. But so far, he hasn't come back um, to the church or anything like that. So he cleaned up his life, but it seems like he didn't surrender to following Jesus Christ. He didn't actually commit his life to Jesus Christ. He tasted of the Christian fellowship, but he didn't actually commit. And if, if you're in that boat, maybe you've tasted of it and you like a lot of things about it, but you're not committing, it seems like Jesus is saying, look, you're in a really dangerous position. Because if you don't turn your life over to Jesus Christ and commit to him, these evil spirits that maybe you thought you had eradicated, you'd gotten rid of, they can come back with even more deceptive and insidious power than before. And it makes sense. If you think you're kind of okay and you're in good shape, that's one of the most vulnerable positions to be attacked by Satan. It really is. So if you've experienced the power of God, and you've remained indifferent and noncommittal, I think this text is saying, look, you're in some danger here. You need to think about this situation. You can't remain neutral. When you hear the word of God, you've got to commit to it and keep it. You can't just give some intellectual assent to it or merely respect its teachings and its morals. You actually have to commit to following after Jesus Christ. So we see the folly of a partial or incomplete commitment. And then in scene 5, verses 46 through 50, this is the last scene, we see the priority and the benefit of a right commitment. So scene 4 was kind of a downer. (laughs) But scene 5, we see some of the benefits of actually making that commitment to following Jesus. So why, why would I even want to do this? That is a very good question to ask. Let me read verses 46 through 50, and we'll talk about that. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and sister. And mother. A couple of observations about this text. First of all, Jesus is not anti-family. He's not saying here, forget your family, follow me. Your family means nothing. That's not what he's saying here. We see, in fact, in Scripture that Jesus speaks of honoring your father and your mother. In fact, he, said, he talks about that in Matthew 15, which is coming up in just a few chapters. So what Jesus is actually saying is, look, commitment to God is more important than your commitment to, say, your immediate family or your extended family. But he's not saying that family commitments are ridiculous or a waste of time. In fact, I think you would say, look, if you commit to following me, you'll be more committed than, to your, your family than you would be otherwise. So when we think about that, I think it, it makes sense to say, okay, we, we spend time a lot of times worrying about family commitments, but do we worry about maintaining our commitment to Jesus? Observation two of this text, the benefit of a commitment to Christ, is inclusion in the family of God. Good question to ask here, why is that a benefit? Why? Who cares? Why do I want to be in the family? Why, why is this a good thing at all? First of all, before I get into that benefit, helpful clarification again, obedience doesn't get you into the family. I said this before, I think I need to say it again, obedience does not get you into the family, it identifies you as being part of the family. Commitment to Christ is not, okay, uh, now I'm going to obey God and get into the family. Commitment means, no, I'm going to surrender my life to God, and indeed, this is the only way to truly obey and follow after the Lord. Commitment comes first, then the obedience. That being said, let's talk about part of the family of God why is this really good news? And as I was studying this, I felt like really the best way to talk about this and answer that question is actually just to read a few things from Scripture about, that talk about benefits of being in the family of God. I think let's just open his book and see what it says about the benefits. Three quick passages here. First one is from Isaiah 41.10. You don't have to turn there or anything. This is, this, is, this is directed toward God's family. It says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's a heck of a benefit. Colossians 1, verses 13 through 14. It's speaking about God here. He, God, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Wow, another incredible, incredible benefit. And finally, if you're wondering, well, what, what does eternal life look like for those who are in the family of God, who commit to following Jesus Christ, or are in the family of God? We see this in Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. And I'll just, I'll just read the last verse, verse 5, actually. And it says, look, "...and night will be no more." They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. People in the family of God reign forever and ever in a place where you don't even need the sun. So a few concluding thoughts. We've seen these five scenes. We've seen the the need for commitment. Jesus drew a line in the sand. We've seen the indication of a commitment. Which side are you on? It's because of your obedience that indicates where you are. We've seen the grounds for this commitment. We've seen the folly of, a, of an incomplete or an impartial commitment. And Jesus has, talk, has spoken about the priority and, and the benefit of being in the family of God. So a few concluding thoughts. And I think this, these are probably clear, but they're helpful to go over one more time. Really clear dichotomy here. Very clear. On one hand... There's a terrible future of pain and even, possibly, inhabitation by evil spirits for those who are not committed to following Jesus Christ. And, and we just really can't dismiss this or make light of this. We can't, we can't just throw this to the side. It's really popular sometimes to make light of this idea of, of hell. Um, I was just at a you know listening into a concert at The Taste of Chicago a couple of weeks ago, and you, might, you may know this song, but there's a line in the song that says, um, all is well in hell. People are dancing and, and carrying on, and you might think, aha, you know, it's kind of a, you know, people don't really believe that, but the thing is, I think people do believe that a lot of times. But we, we can't dismiss this unpleasantness of hell. But on the other hand, if you commit to following Jesus Christ, you're part of the family of God, which is a glorious position that also expands into eternity. And so if there is any debate on this matter, Jesus is very clear what the right choice is. He doesn't just give us two options, pick one or the other, who cares. No, he's saying, here are the two options, here's the right one, here's the wrong one. The correct choice is commitment to following Jesus Christ. And Jesus is also saying, look, no matter what, you're making a commitment here to something. There isn't a neutral ground. We talked about this before. My generation is committed to being uncommitted. I think, in a lot of ways. But he's saying, no, you can't, you, you can't do that. You're committed to this side or you're committed to this side. There's no middle ground regarding the kingdom of God. You can't be spiritually neutral. There's either a christ your life marked by obedience or a self-centered life that's marked by a flailing about for uh, satisfaction and happiness. And that also expands into eternity. Last thing. Why don't we commit to Christ? Why is this a struggle? Why is this difficult to make a commitment to Christ? First of all, I think discontentment plays into this. People talk about the fear of compromise. We think, well, what if something better comes around the corner? What if, what if I commit to this and I find, oh, actually, there's something way better. I don't want to commit. And then, then something better comes around the corner. But Jesus is saying, and, and Paul writes this, if you have time, in Colossians 2, there's nothing better. There is nothing better than following and committing to Jesus Christ. There just isn't. It's totally inconceivable, like we talked about, that there would ever be anything better than following Jesus Christ. And the second reason I think that we don't commit to Christ sometimes is that we we don't understand the benefits and we don't understand what's at stake. As we've we've seen today, salvation of our souls is at stake. There's choices to be made. It's, it's, It's not just this this kind of, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that at some point. Let me enjoy life for a few years. And then down the road, I'll make a decision on this. No, salvation is at stake. And glorious inclusion into the, into the kingdom of God, which is far better than anything else. That's what's, in, that's what's at stake. And then finally, I think sometimes we don't commit because we don't think there's a need to commit. right? We feel like we're fine on our own. We're, we're sufficient, and I, I feel like that sometimes. I was just reading, some of you might have heard about this a couple days ago. Uh, there was this, this firefighter and his son were at a Texas Rangers baseball game. And an outfielder, and this is, a, this is a baseball team, so an outfielder for the baseball team threw the ball into the stands. His dad leaned over to catch it, fell over the fence, and... Fell 20 feet and died right there in front of his son. And in the outfielder for the Rangers, I, I, he, I just read an interview from him yesterday saying, I, I, still, hear, I still hear the screams of that six year old when I try to go to bed at night. And look, I, I, I don't say this to shock you. That is not the intent at all. I'm just trying to say, look, it's really an illusion to think that you're okay and that you're fine and everything is just great because it, it, it's not. Who knows? Who really knows. It's an illusion to say that, that we're safe and we're, we're self-contained and we can do everything on our own. But look, if we commit to Christ, which is clearly the only sensible choice, we can be absolutely secure in our commitment. We're not, we're not committing on our own at all. And there's some really amazing news and we see this in Deuteronomy 31.6 that says, God will never leave you nor forsake you. So we see, if we're in the family, God is committed to you. You're not just committing to God. He's committing to you. He will sustain you, and He will provide for you. And by the way, if we are committed to following Jesus, and you're saying, huh, I've got this, I'm committed, great. Spur each other on to the same exact kind of commitment. So we all have a responsibility. Let's pray. Lord, we... We understand that there are choices to be made and commitments to be made. We pray, Father, that we would commit, that we would all commit, every person in this room would commit to following Jesus, the Savior of the world. We pray that we would stand confidently in the family of God for the glory of God. And we pray that we would spur one another on Lord, we pray to following and to committing after to following Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.